everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And we're back for another month to bring all of the juicy, brainy goodness back to your ears. But right off the top, we just want to remind everyone that our t-shirts are still on sale. The class of 2018 t-shirts are on sale, and we will link to them in the show notes. So if you haven't picked them up yet, grab them. Grab them all. Yeah, grab them up. Sales thus far have been quite good, and they've been arriving at their destinations. We've been seeing Instagram posts and tweets with selfies and photos of them, and they look great. Thank you so much for taking those and sharing them with us. It's awesome to see. And they are a limited edition that are going to be available until September of this year, so don't wait if you want to pick one up. Avoid disappointment, because when they're gone, they're gone for good. But on to today's topic. Today, we are tackling two films which share a striking amount of DNA, not only thematically, but also kind of in their production and in the world they were made in. Mm -hmm. And I have been wanting to tackle these two films for a really long time as Mm -hmm. a kind of pseudo origin of the slasher film, which uh, I think as many people know is one of my favorite subgenres in horror. Mm -hmm. This was, I mean, we wanted to do Psycho forever, but I have to admit that there was a part of me that was kind of dreading it because there is so much scholarship done on this film. And this has popped up again in the podcast before when we tackle something that's a classic, that's really positively regarded and heavily documented. We're like, what do we have to contribute to this discussion that hasn't been said before? So you kind of have to do that extra amount of research to kind of look for stuff like that. But that being said, I I had never seen Peeping Tom. I had heard of it, and I was desperate for an excuse. I had a copy that someone gave me as a gift when they found out I had never seen it, and uh, and so this was it. This was that golden opportunity. So you're getting my uh, my first glimpses here. <laughs> <laughs> These films are both really seminal in uh, almost in different ways. Uh, one is just this kind of huge icon of film, Mm -hmm. not even just horror film, but Psycho is, you know, you say Psycho to almost anyone and they can do that. They Uh they can talk about a shower scene. Uh They know maybe something about uh, Norman Bates and maybe cross-dressing. There's some kind of knowledge there. Uh, Unless you're my boyfriend who halfway through watching the film, uh, which he'd never seen before, he said, Whoa, the mom's the killer? I thought it was Norman. Spoiler alert. And I was like, oh, I didn't I didn't tell him, but he was very shocked at the end. Yeah. But these films both uh, were released within a month of each other in 1960. And this was a time of uh, post-World War II, post, you know, end of the 1950s, that kind of golden age of Americana. And while Psycho is an American film made by a British director, Alfred Hitchcock, Peeping Tom is a British film made by a British director as well, Michael Powell. And so these films kind of deal with that post-war disillusionment in Mm -hmm. different ways and really interesting ways. So I think we're going to be talking quite a bit about that. But one of the things that both these films had was uh, quite a bit of outcry, Peeping Tom in particular, which we'll get into. And that's the notion of evil existing in everyday society. Mm -hmm. Um, As we've mentioned before on this podcast, the kind of era of new Hollywood, you know, more into the late 60s into the 70s. You know, you've got the big films like Easy Rider and Taxi Driver, but also films like Night of the Living Dead and Rosemary's Baby, which deal with a kind of contemporary American society and the ills that reside within it. So 
this was a very shocking thing to see villains and monsters who were not monsters with a capital M. They Mm -hmm. looked like normal people and often acted like normal people. Mm -hmm. They could be your next door neighbor. They could be your friend. They could be anybody. And I think that was really terrifying and obviously really prescient for within the horror genre. It gave birth to a whole subgenre like we're going to talk about. And yeah, there's a lot to say. So shall we? Let me get out my, uh, let me take off this cover, look through my peephole. Let's do this. Peeping Tom. Look out. Look out. Look out. Take care. You are being watched. We repeat, take care. For you are now alone with a killer. We warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. For this is what he seeks. And this is why he killed. Where are you? Where are you? There is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. Peeping Tom follows a film editor by the name of Mark, who also moonlights as a smut photographer, but he's got another side project as well, one involving filming his murders of women with an eye to create the ultimate documentary about fear. When Helen, the daughter of his tenant who lives downstairs, shows an interest in his work, he reveals that his project is in fact a continuation of his father's own fascination with fear, one that had Mark tormented as a child so his dad could film his terror. As a result of this abusive childhood, Mark is fixated on viewing the world through his camera, but eventually his blind tenant gets wise to him, as do the police investigating the serial murders. About to be caught, Mark films his own final scene to his documentary, that of his own suicide. For such a complex film that's a really brief, I mean, there's a lot going on, and one thing I'll say about this film, just my first impression upon the watch was so many red herrings. There were so many points at which I thought it was going to go one way and it went another, and I also have to admit that some of those were a bit of a disappointment to me. There were some Mm -hmm. really compelling threads that I wish uh, got picked up, but all that to say, it's it's a very striking film. It's a very... uh, It's a very layered film. There's a lot going on. And it's a very, what I would say, kind of classically well-made film. Mm -hmm. Uh, The director, Michael Powell, uh, is well known for having quite a lot of, you know, great, quote-unquote, British films. And he actually directed one of my all-time favorite films. It's called The Red Shoes. Mm. And that was a film that I grew up watching. That's the the ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Moira Shira, who plays uh, the lead in The Red Shoes, she plays Vivian in uh, Peeping Tom, the kind of dancer actress who has that okay. sequence. Oh, she's marvelous. Oh, and uh, if, if you like the kind of style, the kind of epic overarching narrative of Peeping Tom and you haven't seen The Red Shoes, it's much more like a like a dark fairy tale about fame. I really, really recommend it. It's absolutely beautiful. And so Peeping Tom was quite a departure from these beautiful, enthusiastic Films about 
all kinds of British life, especially the best parts of British life. And it went into the seediest depths of London. Mm. And this film was reviled. Mm -hmm. It was hated upon its release. So much so, it actually only played in theaters for about five days, and then it was pulled, and the rights were bought back from the film and just kind of quietly covered up. And it became not quite a video nasty, but what you call like a film modi. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was so reviled that so much of the rest of the world, obviously most of the rest of the Western world, could hear about this film, but never saw it. And so one of the biggest champions of this film, and one of people who actually saved it probably in large part uh, was Martin Scorsese. And he is a big fan of Powell's work, I'd say, in general. He cites The Red Shoes as one of his favorite films. And actually, his uh, longtime film editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, actually wound up marrying Michael Powell. And so Scorsese was, you know, as he was kind of, you know, up and coming with Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and all that kind of stuff that he was doing, he was also able to find and save a print of Peeping Tom and bring it over to the States and start getting it screened and really, you know, again, championing it and bringing it to people who are interested in it Mm -hmm. because no one wanted to be associated with this film. And, you know, from my kind of understanding, Michael Powell would be like, gosh, back then, like the British equivalent to like Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then no one wanted anything to do with him. Yeah. His career was essentially over. Yeah, it said it said that on my uh, on my DVD jacket of the film is the film that ended his career. You know, like DVD jacket is supposed to present all the notoriety that it can. It's possible that the backlash was due to the film being partially financed by the National Film Finance Corporation. So, like, I definitely get shades of uh, of David Cronenberg's Shivers, which we talked mm-hmm. about in a previous episode, where national funding toward controversial horror really doesn't go over well. And that stands in stark contrast to Psycho, which we'll talk about later. As Alex just said, it had a completely different production history and a completely different impact on the world as well as on the filmmaker's career. And I think another thing to remember as we talk about the era this film is released in is that this, you know, this was not a hammer horror film. This was not a baddie in a Transylvanian castle wreaking havoc. It was a quiet, young, kind of attractive guy going about his everyday life, but part of his everyday life was murdering women. Mm -hmm. And it's really shocking and it's quite upsetting in many sequences. And it's designed to be. It's Mm -hmm. designed to be upsetting. And one of the things I think both of these films get lobbed with, particularly uh, Peeping Tom, is a notion of misogyny, Mm -hmm. a hatred of women. And Again, we've we've talked about this on this podcast before, but I'll reiterate that I actually don't see this as a misogynist film. Mm-hmm. I see it as a film about misogyny. Mm-hmm. You know, these films didn't invent misogyny. They didn't invent violence towards women. Uh, they are depicting it because it's a reality of life. And I think the way that the female characters are shown throughout the film, some of them are absolutely disposable, particularly the prostitute at the beginning, but there's a lot of sympathy and layers to some of the other female characters, and Powell takes a lot of pains to depict the way that women are viewed throughout the film. Mm. So it starts off, you know, with this kind of grisly murder of a prostitute, which is shocking and, and strange, but, you know, maybe more typical because she would be on the outskirts of society. Right. But then you also have instances of um, 
the scene in the newsagents when the old man looks through the through the slides and buys the porn and they put it in a paper bag and right. he gets to walk out with it to Mark's side job as a pornography photographer. Yeah. And then you see the girl who um, I think has been pretty severely beaten and they say, just don't shoot my face. Was she beaten? I had it. Uh, I thought she had a hair lip. I thought she had. A, I thought she had a deformity, and that was one of the threads that I was just kind of like, she's unafraid in spite of a deformity to her face, which for women is, you know, like mm-hmm. such a big deal. It's like our beauty and especially our face is such a form of cultural currency that here's this woman who's willing to bear herself, who's willing to stare unflinchingly at the camera. And I specifically remember when she turns her face, she has this gaze that's so steadfast, and he has a fascination with it. And I was like, oh, she's gonna. Come come into it somewhere she's unafraid and he's fascinated with fear so she's going to throw a monkey wrench into her shit and it's going to be all about her and him and and when she did come back I was kind of disappointed but yeah I interpreted that as a as a and, genetic and it might be actually but also the other model she mentions you know I was out with my boyfriend and my fiance caught us so yeah, just yeah. try to shoot around my bruises oh my god that was so brutal can you fix it so the bruises don't show and I think what Powell does, and these are all very early scenes in the film, mm-hmm. he really sets up the air of violence towards women in society. Mm-hmm. And Accepted and lived and joked about. But also covered up in ways. Oh, yeah. It's hidden. It's behind the paper bag. It's behind a closed door. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, don't shoot these bruises, shoot around them. That's right. That's right. And I think that's another reason why this film was so upsetting for moviegoers. Like, we don't talk about this. We can't deny that it's true, but we're not ready to admit it yet. Mm-hmm. So I think another element that really puts people at odds with this film, and particularly the audience that first viewed it, was the implication of the audience in the murders and violence that were happening. And Powell does this by switching the camera from the kind of third person shooting the scene, so you get to see all the characters interacting with each other, to then focusing on like the what you would call the killer point of view shot Mm -hmm. or the point of view shot. And there, Mark's camera overtakes the narrative. Mm -hmm. You see what he sees. You see what the camera sees. So it's not just what he sees. Like sometimes it goes slightly out of focus. Mm -hmm. It's a bit blurry. It's not quite focusing right at the second. So you get a sense of the haphazardness of it. And when you're viewing it through that lens, when you're viewing these scenes, it implicates the audience's killer. And then you have a kind of double meta lens on it when you have several scenes of Mark rewatching his own murders, mm-hmm. sitting in this, you know, kind of big old rambling house that he has and lets out to other people, sitting in this kind of little pseudo cinema that he has and replaying these moments mm-hmm. again and again and again. And for me, that was quite interesting because um, certainly when I was younger and even to this day, I was, you know, pretty big scaredy cat. And I think part of horror is watching this stuff so I can get over it. Okay. So I can see it and I maybe know that I won't be as scared or I won't Well, you be conquer scared. it, right? Yeah. Like you, you see a movie that you think might scare you. You take that chance. You roll the dice and then you made it, obviously, because yeah. there's nothing it can do to you. So you win. <laughs> you, yeah. And so I think that put people really at odds because not only is Mark 
kind of a sympathetic character, even a kind of likable character in uh-huh. some scenes. Sure. We are forced into his viewpoint. Uh-huh. We can't escape it. So the deaths of these women becomes part of our responsibility and the fact that you paid your ticket, you paid for the Blu-ray, you paid for hopefully however you're going to watch it. You are feeding into this. Mm-hmm. But I think Peeping Tom, through all of the kind of layers and portrayals of violence against women, is actually not necessarily a condemnation, but more of a critique of how we consume our culture. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there are times when we want to look away and mm-hmm. we want to be like, you know what? I don't actually want to deal with the Me Too movement right now. I don't want to deal with this. And I don't want to see that. I want to look at my happy cat memes. And that's great. You can totally do that. But we are ignoring large sections of society. So mm-hmm. I think this film back in 1960 was really playing with our expectations and responsibilities as viewers. Mm-hmm. And even though, as I mentioned, Mark is oftentimes a very sympathetic character, he's not like a good guy. He's not an aspirational character. No, not at all. I would say, if anything, the aspirational character would probably be Helen, his uh, his neighbor who he kind of has a flirtation and romance with. I love her. I loved her right away. She's mm-hmm. such a whippersnapper. Mm-hmm. Like, she's such a saucy little, and her mom was pretty badass as well. Perhaps, like, stretching my ability to suspend my disbelief a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah, I thought a lot of the women, insofar as I agree with you that that initial prostitute was um, was very disposable. And I think that was, as an opening shot, really supposed to shock and kind of set the stage for this is what you're in for. I think the rest of the women portrayed here were very sympathetic. Even, even that actress who was presented as kind of vapid and she's a bit of a troublemaker on the set because she lets her emotions take over. It's so annoying to work with a woman, right? But it's because she's responding to the trauma that's happening, which kind of adds a lot of gravity to that murder that happened on set. I was actually quite shocked in my reading of various reviews and and think pieces about Peeping Tom that referred to this character Vivian, the um, actress-dancer, as a really insufferable character, as an annoying character. And I was like, oh, I thought she was rather charming and funny and... Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that. I was actually talking about the other actress, the the one who's the star, the one who's kind of the diva. When it comes to Vivian, I feel like there is, I know we're going to talk about slashers. I know we're going to talk about, even when we get to Psycho, we're going to talk about women with loose-ish morals and how they deserve to be punished and this and that. So I think when it comes to Vivian, she's a stand-in and she wants to be a star. Mm -hmm. And so here we've got... Mark, who is preying on her desperation to be in front of camera, her willingness to be in front of camera, her willingness to put herself at risk in the hopes that maybe this is her big break. And I think that's supposed to be her big fatal flaw that's supposed to make us cringe and be like, oh, what an egomaniac, blah, 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 blah. But in 2018, we're like, get it, girl. Yeah, that's, I think, a huge part of dealing with female characters is there is a kind of inherent anger at anyone who dares to be seen or want to be seen like that scene is bad Mm -hmm. and I just I rarely see that as bad Mm -hmm. of course Uh, I find that interesting and cool and actually kind of inspiring Mm -hmm. so I I rarely tend to see those characters as as bad or awful I'm like 
that's cool. I like her. Oh, yeah. that's sad she died. Yeah. I was hoping she'd get away. And she's also the first person we see how he kills them. Mm-hmm. And it's not pretty. No, and it's kind of in the post-Carol Clover, Men, Women, and Chainsaws era, supposed 1992 when that book was published. It's really indebted to that kind of psychoanalysis, you know, phallic symbol, but the phallic symbol's coming off of his camera and it's killing them. And um, it's it's such like a, it's almost a bit too perfect in that way yeah. in, in terms of psychoanalysis. But I'm, I'm not always the biggest fan of that. So I think the fact that you only learn what his device is towards the end of the film. Uh And it's this camera that his father gave him, so it doesn't look quite right. Like, there were some points when I was watching that film where it almost looks a bit like a skull. Like, there are two, it looked like almost two little lenses or screws or something that looked like eyes. And it's all black, and it's, it's just, it's a bit of a creepy object. And then it has these legs, and one pulls off, and it's this, like, sharp knife spike. Mm-hmm. And that's how he kills them. Mm-hmm. So he gets to see their faces. He gets to record their faces. That's right. It's actually perfect for getting that close, close, close up shot. I thought it was really interesting. Do you remember the device that she had to play music on? Mm-hmm. I loved all the gadgets in this film. <laughs> so we're going to be comparing and contrasting with Psycho a lot in this episode, I'm sure. So I'll wait till after we've talked about Psycho to make those larger arguments. But One thing that both these films share is that these murderers were abused as children. And in the case of Mark, Mark's father was a psychologist. He was not a filmmaker. He was using the camera with an intent to study, with an intent to capture, with a very specific purpose. And I I always found it kind of tragic that Mark's father was clearly a sadist. He was clearly abusing his child, but he died a celebrated psychologist that comes up later when there's a psychologist on set to help that diva deal with her shit. It it comes up that he's still a celebrated guy and and his reputation will never be tarnished, not even by this. Um, So he's intent on studying the fear response and he recorded Mark's reaction to his mother's death as well. So when we talk about misogyny in this film, I don't read Mark as somebody who hates women. I read him as somebody who perhaps fears women. And I think that's that's kind of something different. I think that's almost, it's the relationship you were just talking about with a really intimidating horror movie is it, it's something to be conquered and mm-hmm. confronted more so than anything else. Now, I did a piece in last issue's Rue Morgue on nature versus nurture in horror. The cover story was about hereditary, which I can't say anything about this film, apparently, because spoilers are... I think it's a spoiler just to say the title of the film. Oh, my goodness. It's insane. But anyway, obviously, there are themes of hereditary in it. Can we admit that? That's the title of the goddamn movie. Anyway, I hadn't mentioned Peeping Tom in this sidebar because I hadn't seen it, but I mentioned Psycho as having come out at a time when psychoanalysis was really gaining a huge foothold in popular culture and people were really starting to recognize the importance of parenting and environment on psychological development as opposed to, say, The Bad Seed or Frankenstein. There's other older examples where it was something innate and something inside of you. And there was also an increased recognition of what happens behind closed doors, like we were just talking about, the domestic violence, the child abuse and pornography. And and these are the kinds of taboos that Peeping Tom and Psycho both break. Yeah, and it's quite interesting because I think both films, again, we can talk more about this in a little bit, but Peeping Tom in particular, even from the name alone, the title of the film, Mm -hmm. Peeping Tom, it implies a male gaze. Mm -hmm. And uh, male gaze is, again, 
to reference something we haven't talked about in a little bit. It's a theory that was developed by um, an academic by the name of Laura Mulvey in her essay, uh, Visual Pleasure in Narrative Cinema. And that's the notion that the camera gaze is always engendered as male. Mm -hmm. So it lingers on parts of the female body, and so it's obviously a heterosexual male. And everything that happens is at the service of a male viewer. And I think what we're seeing a lot more is challenging of that and, and, you know, creating more diverse voices and more diverse narratives, and which is increasingly important. But when you have a kind of film like this, which is so indebted to the kind of gaze of it, the voyeurist aspect, Mm -hmm. and even the uh, psychologist who pops up at the end and starts talking to Mark about his father and his work, um, when Mark's just trying to get help, it all kind of feeds back into this notion of looking in from the outside. Mm-hmm. You're never quite engaging with life. You're you're on the outskirts of it, and you're kind of trying to figure out your way to interact with it. Right. And I think Mark's gaze in this film, which is what the audience is kind of forced to adopt, is symptomatic of, again, as I've mentioned already, this kind of problematic view of women. Mm. And it was a problematic view of women, not only in society, but something that Mark was raised with, Mm -hmm. which we see through, you know, these really disturbing home videos and all of these elements where Mark was used as a test subject. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting that if you look at the generational aspect of this film, you have Mark's father, who is essentially a scientist, and Mark, who is basically a filmmaker trying to be. And I I like the dichotomy of someone who was of a previous generation kind of being like a voyeuristic mad scientist Mm -hmm. and a kind of new man 1960s voyeurist who is an artist Mm -hmm. there is a sensitivity there there is a kind of lack of objectivity Mm -hmm. because not only does he consume the women within his gaze but he is also consumed by his own gaze he cannot break away from it the only way he can break away from it is his suicide and he commits suicide in the same way he kills women. Mm -hmm. And he says to Helen that I have set this up. I have done this so that I knew this would happen and I am going to do it this way. Right. Helen! Helen! I'm afraid. No! No! Mahalda! And I'm glad. I'm afraid. Which is kind of noble if you think Ooh. about it. Like when you look back on this film, like you said, he's kind of sympathetic because you're like, well, the party's over, man. And he yeah. knew it. With regard to what you were just saying about Mark's Fry, there's also a, an interesting commentary there about the use of this technology because mm. this was a time where, you know, home video, the ability to take video wasn't in everybody's pocket the way it is now. He worked on a film set. He had access to a camera and all these things. And of course, he makes use of the set later. His father presumably pretty affluent as a influential psychologist, he was using the camera for science. He was using it for research. It had a very definite scientific and noble high purpose. Meanwhile, you've got Mark growing up and he's using the camera for what? For movies, entertainment, pornography, to meet his own ends. You know, I think I dare say that Peeping Tom would be an interesting film to remake now because of our changed relationship with being able to record things and having that distance. Like, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you want to be filming something, but you also don't because you want to be in the moment. And the camera kind of puts a distance. So I think in the case of 
mark. He wanted to make that distance. Oh, absolutely. When I was rewatching this film, I was reminded quite a bit of the Blair Witch Project, which I also just recently rewatched. And uh, there's a part where Josh in the film has the camera and he's filming Heather and he says something to the effect of, I see why you like this thing so much. It makes everything not quite real. Right. And that sentiment just kept replaying every time I watched this because Mm -hmm. that lens, that physical camera lens, it's putting that distance between you and what is going on, whether it's a fun night out with your friends that you want to celebrate and share or something cool you're doing that you want to share or a grisly murder. Mm -hmm. There is something separating yourself and it's that kind of fear of intimacy the the lack of intimacy it, mm-hmm. i think what i get from the stuff from mark's childhood is he's always been held at arm's length right he was an object rather than a child rather than part of a family mm-hmm. and he was never able to amend those two things right yeah it seems like that was just the case for everyone in mark's father's life right like there was the implication that he remarried very quickly just on to the next you know like what is my wife but another possession mm-hmm So speaking of voyeurism, you know, the term comes up a lot. So I feel like it bears mention to perhaps define it, define its classical definition and how that definition has changed after a while. Because like I was just mentioning, uh, the emergence of technology to capture stuff, like we have more and more access to everything. There's less and less taboos all the time. And so the nature of things have changed. So Voyeurism is classically understood as the practice of spying on people engaged in intimate behaviors. And that can be anything from undressing, sex, taking a shit, brushing your teeth. Like it could be anything that's considered private. And it's criminal if it's impinging upon somebody's privacy without their consent. Now, from a psychological point of view, psychology considers it deviant if those voyeuristic urges or fantasies are acted upon, but it's pretty much understood that everybody has these compulsions to a certain extent, and especially now where sociology is taking a good hard look at reality TV, true crime and documentaries, everybody likes to have a good peep, and the stats are showing that it's The activity is more common to occur in men than in women, but research shows that both genders are equally interested in taking a peek behind the curtain. And perhaps it's just that men have more opportunity to act on voyeuristic impulses, given that so much of femininity is controlled and regulated and under wraps. We just have so many more secrets. All the secrets. Mysteries. Trying to think of something funny. It's not funny. It sucks. And then when it comes to people for whom voyeurism is an actual problem, it's treated the way they treat OCD, which is to say that they will expose the patients to legal porn or erotica just to steer them away from more illicit means of getting their kicks, which always makes me wonder. I mean, we're going to talk about Psycho shortly, but in the case of Peeping Tom, if he hadn't committed suicide, if he hadn't been stopped, if he hadn't been captured, do you think there would have been hope? You know, that's an interesting question, in particular because of that scene I was alluding to earlier where he meets the psychologist on the film set mm-hmm. who's rhapsodizing about Mark's father. Mark seems to be trying to get real information about how to help himself, yeah. how to make this better. And it's this intensely long, time-consuming therapeutic process. Mm-hmm. There's not a pill he can take. He seems to have 
decided that he wants to be better. He seems to know what he does is wrong, mm -hmm. and he really seems to care about Helen, and he wants to be with her fully. Mm -hmm. And the look on his face uh, throughout that scene, that becomes more and more dejected as he realizes when the doctor says, oh, there is a cure, but it takes three years, therapy three times a week, uh, one hour each session, right. and you can just see his face fall. And it's um, those barriers that are created within the medical community because our minds and our bodies are complicated things mm -hmm. that are hard to control when something is ingrained in them. Oh, that's right. Um, He's had years of abuse, and it's going to take years to undo, and it's I find it so deliciously ironic that his father was a shrink who abused him, and he needs a shrink to fix him now. Mm -hmm. But no, I, I don't know if Mark would be better. That's okay. It was just something to think about in terms of how this film ends by contrast with how Psycho ends. But we can come around to that. Yeah. And what I always think is really interesting when we talk about voyeurism, particularly in film, particularly in horror films, has to do a little bit with uh, my own background uh, in theater and studying story narratives and things like that. Some of the most exciting stories we've told ourselves and audiences around the world have to do with these slices of life. The slices of life that we don't get to see or we know of, but now we get to see them enacted on stage. So mm. they become universal. They become powerful. Mm -hmm. They become really empowering in some ways. And I always think it's interesting when people get all up in a tizzy about some kind of element of film, particularly in these two films, about voyeurism and voyeurism is bad mm -hmm. and we should not have it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then what do you think film going is? Yeah. What do you think going to the theater is? What do you think reading a book is? Mm -hmm. It is seeing into something else that we are not normally privy to. Granted, we're talking about fictional characters who don't have to worry about consent and all that. So, yes, I understand there is a difference. But in the attitude uh -huh. and the way we consume it, I find the hysterics around it a bit exhausting. Yeah. And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we as an audience – any kind of mainstream audience probably have a bit more in common with Mark than we would like to think. For sure. And I think that is where these films become really amazing mm -hmm. because they ask us to reflect on ourselves. Yeah. I don't consider myself a pervert, but I am a tremendous snoop. There's something in my personality that if you, you are the biggest snoop. If you put me in a new environment, I don't like it, it's partially like nervous energy and it's partially curiosity. It's 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 part of all that. So I, I'm I'm inclined to defend it as natural and totally mentally healthy. You're like the Nancy Drew of people's <laughs> bits and pieces. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like an OBGYN. <laughs> so from one voyeur to another. <laughs> Let's talk about Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film, Psycho. I want you to see Psycho the way I originally made it, with every scene intact, the version TV did not dare show. The murderer, you see, crept in here, very slowly across the showers on, there was no sound, and... Uh, See it uncut, intact. No one will be admitted to see it except from the very beginning. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Rated M 
Suggested for mature audiences. Parental discretion advised. Marion Crane's boyfriend cannot be with her due to his financial concerns. In a moment of opportunity, she steals $40,000 she was supposed to deliver to a bank and makes a run for it. After a couple days on the road, raising the suspicion of the police, she stops at the Bates Motel. She meets the odd but kind owner of the motel, Norman, who lives with his mother up the hill. As Marion settles in for the night, she seems to make the decision to return the money and deal with whatever befalls her. Before she can do so, she is murdered in the shower. A private detective, Arbogast, her sister, Lila, and Marion's boyfriend, Sam, are on her tail. All roads lead to the Bates Motel, where Arbogast is murdered, and Lila uncovers the terrible secret that Norman's mother is dead, her body in the fruit cellar, and half of Norman's psyche has been overtaken by his mother, causing him to commit heinous acts. That's a synopsis. That's what happens in this film. But of course, the wider picture, and I'm sure everybody knows this, any cinephile kind of knows that this was positioned in such a way where Janet Lee, who plays Marion Crane, was credited as the star. She had starred in Alfred Hitchcock's films before. She was a big name. And so everyone was expecting her to be in this film, the whole thing. And Hitchcock famously didn't allow anyone to step into the film late. Uh, when the film started, the doors were shuttered, and it's because he didn't want anyone to reveal the fact that she's murdered. He wanted that impact to hit really hard. And it really does. I have to say, even on the rewatch, even knowing what happens in this film, you get so caught up in Marion's story and even her character. She's so likable and she's so sympathetic. And it's also important to note that this came out basically about a month after Peeping Tom. And Hitchcock and Michael Powell knew each other. Mm -hmm. So Hitchcock watched what happened with Peeping Tom quite closely. And because Psycho is largely self-financed by Hitchcock, he retained a lot of control over marketing. So Psycho was not screened in advance for the press, mm -hmm. which in this day and age is kind of a death knell. And he produced three trailers for this film. One asking that the secret of the film not be revealed. One stipulating the rules of seeing this film, as Andrea mentioned, no one admitted after the beginning, and then a kind of tour of the Bates Motel, where he, with a kind of sick wink and a nod, talks about the potentially terrible things that happened in this mm. place. Yeah, it's significant to note that Hitch financed the film himself because he was a very big name. He had a Midas touch. Everybody was interested in what he was doing, but this film was a little bit risque. And so the studio was very hesitant. And as a result, he financed the film himself and proposed a 60% stake in the film's returns instead of a director's salary, which made him so much money. It was such a great decision. And I think in the wider scheme of horror cinema is these, you know, auteurs who really want to say something important. The studio is not going to help you. Uh, one thing that will happen is what happened with Peeping Tom, where they go ahead and make it and it becomes a huge upset. Or on the flip side, you've got Psycho, which is Hitchcock's most celebrated film. It's really the feather in his cap. It's a film that is it, it gets a lot of the credit of being the progenitor of the slasher genre, which we're going to go into. But I think the couple of months in between, I don't know. I don't know if you can really say one is influenced by the other, but the fact that they had such different experiences at the box office is really significant. And even as I was mentioning Psycho as a cultural touchstone, mm. it's uh, one of those horror films that is so 
ingrained in a Western psyche Mm -hmm. that when you mention horror films to maybe someone who isn't a horror fan, that one tends to come up pretty quickly. Yeah. Now, while Psycho is known as a kind of horror film, uh, we've got the infamous shower scene, we've got this, that, and the other going on, which are all very iconic. To me, what is really interesting about Psycho is not that it has unreliable narrators, but that it has multiple narrators. It is a story told from multiple angles. And, you know, you can look at this thematically as these multiple narrators all kind of mirror and refract Norman's own broken mind psyche and his own broken narrative, the way he kind of interprets his own history. Yeah, it actually feels like almost uh, almost several movies in one, and each one has a very compelling, because the characters are so, so well drawn. And the film, it set a new standard for violence and depravity and sexuality in film. And it's a little weird to look back on now and think, oh, an unmarried couple in bed, woo, a toilet, woo. But back in the day, that was a really big deal. And, and then there's also the gender bending aspect, which I feel like the film actually handles really, really well, considering when it came out. And I'm thinking in particular the scene at the very end where they're like, oh, he's a transvestite. And the psychiatrist is like, "Mm, not exactly. There's more to it than that. I I think this film has a lot to say about uh, popular psychology and what the public recognizes of psychology in that you've got this psychologist making a big oration explaining exactly what's going on. And insofar as dissociative personality disorder has been kind of debunked, kind of relegated to the sidelines of psychiatry. We can get into that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to just yeah, get into, jump it? into it? He's explaining an aspect of psychiatry that was really new and novel at the time. And at the time, that psychiatrist was really explaining what they understood about it. By now, it's been largely debunked. Like, multiple personality disorder kind of had its heyday, and then it was really refuted. And now it's still in the DSM somewhere. Like, I think it's it's become a branch of a branch of a branch of schizophrenia. It's definitely not accepted in a court of law as, oh, it wasn't me. It was my other personality. And I remember when we went to see Split, I saw that with you. We were just kind of like, wow, that junk science in here is crazy. But in the way Psycho handles it and in the way they explain it, it really uh, lends it some credibility, I think. In what way does it lend it credibility? It doesn't simplify it. You know, I feel like it just really, he's got guilt over this and that manifests in this and that way. And he expects that the mother would be jealous. And so he externalizes that. I, I think the projection and the repression elements of what he's explaining hold up, hmm. if not necessarily the split personalities. That's interesting because I often, one of the notes I have here is... Um, women as only true active participants in the film. Mm. You know, it's the female characters who drive this narrative forward. And I would even include Mrs. Bates sure. in this because I think Norman truly does believe that part of him is Norma. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the men in this film are so largely ineffectual. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of there. And maybe they mean well, maybe they don't. But they don't have a lot of uh, stake in the narrative. They're right. just kind of there for eye candy yeah. in a way, it's particularly Sam. Yeah. And uh, the way that the women force things forward in a really 
direct way is still pretty stunning by today's standards. For sure. Well, they're forcing things forward with their own agency and their own, I have a boyfriend who can't marry me right now, but I'm still going to carry on this love affair. And she's kind of conflicted about that. But like Marion is a very self-actualized woman with agency. And you get the sense that, that Norma kind of was too. And mm-hmm. that, you know, her son just punished her for it. And even Lila, like Lila is not trying to get at something else. She just wants to see her sister. That's right. She just wants to talk to her sister. And she doesn't give up, even when the men are kind of like, oh, well, she probably ran off He said he'd call. (laughs) Well, it's been three hours, buddy, so we're just going to fucking go there. Yeah. So I think it'd be a good time to bring up the theme of deinstitutionalization, which got brought up in a really interesting essay that I found uh, through JSTOR called Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? Psycho, Foucault, and the post-war context of madness by Cynthia Erb. And Erb goes on to kind of explore uh, Michel Foucault, who is a psychologist and thinker, a French guy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what they did. Um, His theories about mental illness and how in the mid-1950s, there was a lot of investment and looking towards reforming the experience of dealing with mental health and mental health facilities, but it also questioned what constitutes mental illness. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like a reconstituting of like what was classically understood as hysteria. Yeah, just because you have your period doesn't mean you should get put in an asylum. During this time, there was also this kind of lingering threat and eventual exposure of the inhumane treatment of patients in these institutions. And, you know, Foucault, a lot of people kind of label this as a bit too simplistic, but from 1650 onwards, mental illness became more of a cultural worry and it became the age of confinement. So if you were dealing with mental illness, if you were perceived to be mentally ill, you were put away. Mm -hmm. You were dealt with behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. You were not out in public. You were not in the community. And this wave of interest in mental health kind of post-World War II had to do with a kind of reinvestment in America. Uh, again, that golden age Americana. What are we going to do now? Mm-hmm. We want to have the best. We want to be the best. So mm-hmm. let's really look at this. Let's treat people. Yeah, let's take care of this. And there were a few instances, like Life Magazine had a photo essay series called Bedlam 1946. And A lot of people through these photo essays, through more investigative journalism, began to see the true horror of mental illness facilities at this time to the point when they actually seem comparable to some of the tactics used by Nazis. So there was a tremendous amount of fear, some outcry. And it's not like the system changed overnight. Not at all. Mm -hmm. It took a very long time. It is still taking a very long time to even begin to destigmatize mental illness. And a lot of that has to do with a kind of medicalizing and moralizing of madness. Not only do we want to medicate people heavily, but we also want to moralize it. You want to put a very clear box on mental illness that we can deal with it. And oftentimes, just like people, it's much more complicated than that. And what I think is really interesting about Psycho, one of the many things, is that that end sequence. So not only do you have the psychologist rhapsodizing about this, that, and the other, but then the film ends on Norman. And the VO on that is Norma's voice. Mm-hmm. They're probably watching me. I'll let them. 
Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even gonna swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why she wouldn't even harm a fly. I think it plays into that fear of overcoming mental illness versus faking sanity. Yes. And that is chilling. Yes, it is. Because this part of Norman understands enough Mm -hmm. that it's going to play a game. Yes. Yes, and that kind of brings about the fact that there are numerous sequels to this film. Uh, I think there are three, and that's not including the Gus Van Sant remake, which I don't think we need to talk any more about than I just did. Nope. There was a Bates Motel TV film in 1987, and then the A&E TV series that came out in 2013. I haven't seen it. I've heard mixed reviews. I'm a little bit intrigued. I recapped the first season. Uh, I think oh, the yeah. Famous Monsters of Filmland. Right. And I did not enjoy it. Okay. Uh, I remember there was one scene, and it's it's set in contemporary times, so like 2000s. And I remember there was a scene where a group of kids are sitting around, and, and they're all hanging out. I think Norman's trying to get in with them. And uh, one of the kids has an acoustic guitar, and he's playing Slide by the Goo Goo Dolls, uh-huh. which disturbed me that I even knew what that song was. But then it disturbed me song? more that it was just that song. Yeah. That song came out like... 2006 or something? Who knows? Anyway, that's what that show was for me. I will always (laughs) remember that scene more than anything because I was flabbergasted. Yeah, so we're just going to... Does Johnny Resnick need that much money? (laughs) But yeah, it's also worth mentioning that once upon a time, crazy people were just set in an institution along with the poor, along with the criminal. It was just out of sight. Exactly. And so that is yet another light that was shown by this film. Yeah, like, yeah, it showed a toilet. It showed an unmarried couple having sex. It described something that we don't like to talk about and we don't like to confront, which is what we do with our mad, how we treat our mad. The fact that I'm even using the word mad, I'm using it (laughs) semi-ironically a little bit here. But I thought it was also really interesting that... uh, when Marion suggests that Norman put his mother in a home for professional care, he automatically starts talking about nut houses. I felt like there was a definite implication that perhaps he had seen the interior of that. It didn't come up with the psychiatrist, and it would have, so maybe never mind. But he also has tremendous sympathy for his mother in that that, that it's not fair that she be perceived as ill as the result of her own trauma and shock. And I thought that was really way ahead of its time in terms of how we talk about people who have endured some serious shit and how that is something that can affect your behavior and how it can and should be treated. I also liked the anxiety about uh, about the broken home mm. and their consequences. That is such a subversion of the American dream, the white picket fence, you know? Well, there is no nuclear family in this film. Nope. None. Sam is divorced. Mm-hmm. You uh, definitely have the sense that Norma had a couple other guys after Norman's father. Mm-hmm. There is... No way to get to it. You can see two people in love, and Marion and Sam, but they can't be together. He doesn't have money. It's not proper. How could he take care of her? Mm-hmm. Even though she doesn't give a shit and she just wants to be with him. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's that kind of similar end to the 1950s when well before, you know, New Hollywood, were well before the kind of 70s 
Nixon Vietnam like fuck America attitude, but mm-hmm. it's just starting to seep in. Right. And obviously, uh, Psycho is based on a book by Robert Block. Yes. And uh, that was published in 1959, and I believe it was Hitchcock's assistant who was like, "You should make this film." Mm-hmm. And obviously there are ties to the real-life serial killer of Ed Gein when you talk about Norman Bates. And of course, Ed Gein has gone on to inspire other characters like Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. It's again that kind of sense of the reality of the world seeping in, just as we Mm -hmm. talked about in Peeping Tom, the sense that the society around it has to be reflected in the media that it produces. Mm -hmm. Here we have, you know, again, these things that were happening in real life. And people didn't want to deal with it when they went to the movies. They wanted to see people fall in love or something kind of strange happen, but it all comes back together. Yeah, the fairy tale. And we don't have that. And I think one of the most interesting critiques, which several critics have made of Psycho, is in particular to do with the shower scene. Uh Um, And there's so much theory and criticism about this scene, but it has to do with the notion of the 1950s movement towards hygiene and prosperity. So in the 1950s, not only did you have the white picket fence in the nice house, but you all had the time to clean yourself every day and you brush your teeth and you wash your face and you shave your face. And everything is just dandy. was so time consuming. I was watching a YouTube video today on just like how they did their hair like that. Like Janet Lee's little tight little updo, like that's rollers and teasing. Well, and, and it's spray. crazy because when she washes her hair, it all falls out, and you see this totally different hair shape. Right, scandalous. And you know, so to take the space of in the shower scene, she's in the shower, she's cleaning herself. I actually do not find it to be a titillating scene. Not at all. It's not sexualized in the slightest. No. And she is participating in what is supposed to be one of the great American pastimes of cleaning yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is where she is struck down. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, I will read stuff about, uh, because I love my beauty and my fashion, and I will read stuff about what French women think of American style. And they're always like, oh, you you are also clean. Well, that's a German accent. Oh, I can't do a French accent that's right now. Okay, that's all right. Oh, oui, oui. You are uh, so nettoyé. You are so clean. You're shaving your pits. Let me light up this cigarette and try to burn off some hair. I think that's a kind of really great inversion of how we see Americana. Mm. Not only is there a lack of a nuclear family, not only is there a lack of all the promises that are meant to be, like Marion has a job. Uh-huh. She seemingly is a pretty okay job. Self-sufficient She's woman. self-sufficient. She does her own thing, but she can't get what she wants without stealing $40,000. That's right. That's right. And like, insofar as we're talking about the, uh, the subversion of the American dream, the guy who has this money, Tom, is a very repugnant figure. Oh. He flaunts his wealth. He brags about selling off his daughter at age 18. He literally says money buys happiness. He is capitalism- personified, the American dream accomplished, and it's presented in this film as loathsome, which is really scandalous. So I think a lot of the pearl clutching about the nudity and violence is actually a little bit displaced. Oh, completely. And it also implies that that version of the American dream is only accessible to men, specifically white heterosexual men. Well, it's interesting you should bring that up because the next thing I was going to bring up is Norman as a victim of a failed capitalistic venture through no fault of his own. Basically, the Bates Motel is 
always pretty vacant because a new highway took the Bates Motel off the main road. And that's obviously symbolic of Norman being off the main road figuratively as well as literally. It, it kind of engenders some sympathy for Norman and his isolation and stuff. Like, business isn't good. He owns the hotel. He owns the house. So he's able to be self-sustaining. But again, he's someone else that the American dream has failed. If I remember correctly, in Bates Motel, I believe part of the storylines had to do with Norma fighting the highway. Really? Yeah. Oh. Almost makes me want to watch it, but yeah, gooey do dolls. Thing. <laughs> oh, gosh. But it implies a sense of sympathy for Norman in that it's not his fault things are the way they are. And there's also something displaced about Bates Motel, not only due to the highway, but also because of the big fucking creepy house behind it. And there's that. And... You know, just as I was talking about Peeping Tom about, you know, it's not in this Transylvanian castle with a vampire running around. This is about as close as you're going to get to a Transylvanian castle in California in the 1960s. This house is quite stunning in terms of its architecture. Mm -hmm. It looms large in the film. Mm -hmm. It looms large in the franchise. It's one of the most iconic buildings in horror. Completely. It still, I believe, exists on the universe a lot. Mm. And it is truly odd because when you see it you see this little motel and then you see this house right and then it's like this doesn't make sense something is wrong yeah you would never go up to the house but she doesn't have the opportunity to go up to the house she goes to the motel which is something very safe for americans very familiar for americans who are taking a road trip so you take a stop and you take a shower and even janet lee is reported as she never took a shower after this she was traumatized i also saw in my research that she received a lot of threats a lot of stalkers detailing what they'd like to do to marion crane and like it's just totally fucked up Well, it's, you know, I I think if anything, Psycho kind of acts as a warning about the freeness of movement. Mm. I think it's interesting that in the motel sequences, very early on, we see Norman remove part of the wall so he can spy Mm -hmm. and engage in his voyeuristic tendencies Mm -hmm. on Marion. But by the same token, we already have a sense of surveillance in this film. The first night Marion's on the road, she pulls over because she is falling asleep and she is awoken by a cop. And this cop follows her. He is watching her. He is watching her while she buys a car. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is living in this era of supposed freedom where it probably would have been a lot easier to pick up and move. But the seemingly random incident has made her the target of this cop. And he's going to watch her and they're all kind of watching her. Mm -hmm. And that's how they find her so quickly. That's how they find Norman so quickly. There is no part of this woman's life that isn't watched. The only part that wasn't was maybe her lunchtime dates with Sam. That's right. Because who could have suspected, right? She was suspicious as fuck, admittedly, in the car with the cop. Like, can I go? Can I go? Can I go now? Everyone knows he can't talk to a cop like that. Well, this is before the era of YouTube videos about how to talk to a cop. Just The fact alone that he took down her plate and went back to his car and she drove off. I feel like I've seen this film a thousand times. I've read a billion essays about it. And I was like, whoa, that's fucking balls, Marion. So turning back to Peeping Tom and the enduring legacy of these two films within cinema and within horror specifically, we are seeing repression unleashed. We are seeing the breaking of cinematic taboos. 
And most importantly for our purposes is we are seeing the trope of sex equals punishment, which is very common of slashers. It's parodied to the point where the kills aren't even a big deal anymore. I think that's where Psycho and Peeping Tom really set themselves apart from the slashers that come later is all the sympathy it engenders for its victims, whereas later they become kind of fodder. But but the roots are there and they will seed and grow. Far be it from me to essentialize the slasher genre. This is entirely your territory, but you can <laughs> confirm the killer is a human, often a psychotic product of abuse, sexually active women as victims, murders taking place outside of the victim's home, penetrative weapons, and attack from the perpetrator's point of view? Kind of, yeah. I tend to use the Carol Clover method of delineating elements of slashers. Okay. Um, I always think of her as the final girl girl, but she also provides a really Oh, yeah. She, she really codified the slashers in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, her book. Her Seminal book. stuff, by the way, oh, for yeah. all of you who are asking where to begin with this kind of inquiry. That's a really good place to start. And there's not – I don't agree with all of it. No. She kind of comes down in an anti-feminist way about slashers. She doesn't even seem to like horror films that much. <laughs> but for all of the work she has done, you know, that kind of – again, the codifying, the analytical element, you know, and she pairs things together like – the original Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. She talks about a lot of things and kind of brings them all together to create this movement. Mm-hmm. And this book was published in 1992. It actually recently got a reissue. I guess it was like the 25th anniversary or something. Oh, my God. Uh, and I think she wrote a new forward for it, which I read online, but I haven't bought the new edition of it, okay. which I really should. But I love slashers. I just love them. They were the first horror movies I ever got into, so they hold a place very near and dear to my heart, particularly The Final Girl. That figure and that character has meant a lot to me and continues to mean a lot to me. So I'm obviously very biased when I talk about slashers, and I'm okay with that. But I wanted to kind of break down um, some of Clover's versions of what Andrea just described. So you have, just as I was mentioning, the final girl. Mm -hmm. And the final girl is notable because, obviously, super paraphrase Clover here, she does not participate in really any kind of sex or drugs as her friends do. She goes through trials and tribulations, often where she witnesses the horror that has befallen her friends. So coming across their bodies, all kinds of weird shit. So she perceives the full extent of the horror which is about to befall her. And she can often take on masculine traits as she becomes more powerful and fights back. And then as she has defeated the monster for the time being, uh, she often reverts back to a feminine stance where, you know, they call it uh, in kind of slasher narratives and, and uh, studies dropping the knife. Mm. So she drops her weapon and she reverts back to a kind of more feminine qualities. Right. Then there is the killer. The killer is inhuman or human. It varies, especially as you get later on into some of these franchises. And then there are the victims. They – Clover – 
articulates that kind of men and women are punished equally, which I think a lot of people don't always remember. Mm. Um, oftentimes, the female kills are more extensive. Mm. There's more time spent on their bodies. Again, we're looking at that kind of male gaze of the camera. So the fetishizing of their bodies versus a male kill, which is usually a stab, stab. Something else happens to her and then mm-hmm. she dies. Then there is the weapon, which always necessitates a close proximity with which to use. So right. you've got Norman Bates' knife, Mark's pokey leg thing with the knife at the end of it. <laughs> you have Michael Myers' kitchen knife. You have Jason Voorhees' machete. You have Freddy Krueger's finger things, Ghostface hunting knife. You, you guys get the drift. And so that kind of represents the phallic object, and they're acting out some kind of psychoanalytical fantasy. Again, Clover's reading, not necessarily mine. Uh, and then, also really interesting, which doesn't always get talked about, is the notion of the terrible place. Mm. The notion where something bad happened that gets revisited upon the characters within a narrative. So in this case, it would be the Bates house, Uh let's say. It could be Camp Crystal Lake. It could be Elm Street. It could be the cinema that Mark creates in his own home Uh. where you relive these things. So... Obviously, Clover constructs these elements so that there is a fair amount of elasticity to them, and you can kind of play in them, and you can kind of play outside of them. But I think you really see the seeds germinate from both Peeping Tom and Psycho. Mm -hmm. Um, And as well, when you talk about the killer, oftentimes you're in their vantage point. So that's another really big thing that you see in both of these films. And I think you see them tackled in most of the major later franchises because it's so effective. I don't know if there's kind of the necessary insight and depth that we've talked about with these, the kind of audience is conduit, but aren't all audiences conduits, blah, blah, blah. It's it's just about, it's a shock. Mm. And anytime you minimize that kind of gaze around the camera, when it becomes non-omniscient, then it becomes even more terrifying. Right. It's worth mentioning that neither of these films actually has a final girl. So the final girl was something that emerged in the slasher genre post these films. And if I dare speculate, it's because, I mean, these films engender such empathy in the bad girls, whereas in the later slasher films, these are the girls who are dispatched, is we need a point of entry to this narrative with somebody who is sympathetic. And Mm -hmm. I think... I think maybe like a surface level understanding of women is, you know, good girls want to see good girls succeed because Mm -hmm. that is congruent with the American dream. That is congruent with morality. And when so much of normalcy is subverted in these films, that's kind of a rock that we lean on. Yeah. For me, a lot of the issues we have, the victims of slasher films, I agree. I don't disagree with that. You know, I think you can enjoy a lot of things while still seeing their problematic elements. Mm -hmm. I think in the case of the slasher film... The victims are the way they are, and I often think it gets overplayed that all the victims in slasher films are dumb, and they're stupid, and they don't know anything. Mm. You know, there are plenty of smart, funny, strong people who become victims in slasher films. Oh, for sure. Smart, funny people do drugs and have sex. That doesn't diminish them as people. To me, I kind of view the outcry that happened around Peeping Tom and Psycho as the kind of titillating fantasy of a film producer. Right. It's like, oh, that pissed them off? all right, let's play this out. Mm. And they became really formulaic really quickly. And uh, there's a fear around sex and drugs, particularly in teens. Mm -hmm. And these are really easy ways to have them be like, well, 
the morality standard police mm-hmm. who came out to see Psycho and Peeping Tom shut this down. Yeah. So let's see them do it now. Yeah. And you generate controversy, you generate this, that, and the other. And I think that's why a lot of slashers kind of engender a really conservative Reagan era feel to them. For sure. And I don't think that's correct. I don't always think that's right. And I think that's something we often associate with slashers rather than actually investigate. Hmm. It's not something I would put on most slashers. Yeah, there are some dumb characters who are victims, but oftentimes there are a lot of empathetic victims. Yeah. I'll I'll have to take your word on that. I, I don't I don't share your love of slashers at all. I find them formulaic to the point of repetitive and I find I kind of get bored. But um, but as a result, I think I tend to overlook any nuances because I'm not looking for them because the easy answer is just like, eh, it's following the formula. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to be quite dismissive of them. Mm-hmm. But I think for fans of slashers, you know, if you've watched all the Friday 13ths, if you've watched all the Nightmare on Elm Streets, all the Scream films, mm-hmm. all the I Know What You Did Last Summer's, you know there are good people in those films and their deaths are felt. Mm-hmm. And then so it feels even more triumphant mm-hmm. when um, one girl or two people survive and fight back. Right. They're fighting back on behalf of a lot of other things. Yeah. And those tropes are being renegotiated and renegotiated again and again. I think in a recent episode, we were talking about that Black Museum debate where it was best final girl. And there were so many different interpretations of what a final girl was, what she could be, how she could be construed, how she challenged the status quo. And every single one of those competitors brought up Carol Clover. Like, it it all came from the same germ. And may I share my own experience with that debate? Please. Andrea and Paul Korup, uh, who run the Black Museum, very kindly asked me if I wanted to be part of the debate. And I thought about it, and I just was like, I can't be part of this debate because it means too much to me. Yeah. Like, if I had lost, even knowing it's a fun, entertaining event, I would have been, like, crushed. So... I chose not to participate because slashers mean too much to me. And that should have been foreshadowing for me because there was some really stupid fallout after this event of people being a bit too close to their subject matter and taking it too personally if they didn't get points and stuff and attacking one another. Well, this means something to me and how dare you say it doesn't. Which brings me to something else that I wanted to talk about, something that's happening really right now. I think it was just earlier this Mm -hmm. week that it was starting to hit the horror zeitgeist or whatever you want to call it. And that is a filmmaker by the name of Anna Biller. And I don't know her work that well. As far as I know, she kind of burst onto the scene with her film The Love Witch, which came out uh, maybe three, two years ago. It got a lot of press in that it was very unique. It was a throwback to kind of 60s exploitation. Like It was very colorful. It was very true to the era. The cinematography and the sets and the costumes and the makeup were all absolutely on point and delightful to watch. And you've got this character, the Love Witch, and she kind of, um, she's sort of a, a predator. But at the same time, I found myself kind of confused by like she seemed to be looking for love and at the same time punishing men who wanted to love her and we tried to watch it together and I wasn't getting anywhere with it and I was getting frustrated but I always meant to go back to it I always meant to go back like yeah we didn't there's something here there's something here to understand and unpack and before I was able to go back to it Anna Biller published a blog post 
saying that we need to stop calling films feminist. And it really stopped me in my tracks and made me kind of blah, because I felt like there must have been feminism in her film with what little we saw. I didn't understand it. I hadn't unpacked it. I hadn't. I felt like there were seeds of it there. And yet for her to publish this blog post, and we'll link to it in the course notes, it's a big, long blog post about how she's upset and troubled that people are reading feminism into elements of film that are simply non-misogynist. And she thought that that was harmful to the political movement. And I could not fundamentally disagree with that more. I think films are inherently political. I think pop culture is tremendously political. I think a lot of us glean our politics from the narratives that we get out of our entertainment. And I think feminism is something that you can see in the everyday, and you should. <laughs> if you can find it, my God, take it, suck it up, savor it. And um, to be told that empowered you, well, too bad. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in everyone having their own opinions. And we have people write into us all the time and disagree with us. Mm-hmm. And that's cool. Um, what I always just ask is that people be respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had someone very recently come up to me and say, like, I just have to tell you, and you're going to be so upset about this, but I didn't like martyrs. And I was like, that's totally fine. Yeah, You don't cares? have to like martyrs. As long as you respect my ability to like it. That's right. We're all good. Tell me you don't like women and we'll have it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm like, I'd be interested in hearing why you don't like it. Yeah. You can hear why I like uh-huh. it. And we may never, ever agree. But I'm not here to change your mind about anything. I think my problem with Biller's posts this week and, and blog posts in general are that the way she judges people, it's incredibly condescending. It's It's not anything I would choose to engage with. And I think I try to be really sensitive to this as someone who is um, a film critic and a film fan is there's not a lot of wrong ways to like movies. Right. There's different ways. And if you find interesting things that make you feel inspired and passionate, then chase that. As long as you're not hurting anyone. Right. Okay. So that was a blog post from like from years ago that that soured me to her and the film and whatever. Honestly, like it, I, I'm speaking passionately about it now, but it really didn't keep me up at night. It really wasn't a big deal. However, as of May 8th, today is the 11th. So earlier this week, she published a tweet and the tweet was, unpopular opinion. The quote, final girl, end quote, is not there in most cases to celebrate a strong woman. She is there to dispel male voyeuristic guilt at the pleasure of watching eight other disposable women be violently killed, and so he can call his entertainment progressive. And I was just, wow, like there is so much going on there. And she's presenting it as a hot take. It's not a hot take. It's a very judgmental and condescending mm-hmm. thing. Like, man, you're a horror filmmaker. If you're going to engage in the community, you've got to kind of respect the scholarship that's going on in here. And, and I'm not I'm not coming at her for, for disagreeing. I'm coming at her for the way she's disagreeing. And also discounting the legions of women who watch horror films. So he can call his entertainment progressive. Like, I'm pretty sure oh, it was women off. who took that stance to begin with because they yeah. felt empowered by Final the Girls. The term was coined by Carol Clover. Yeah. Most of the horror fans I've known in my life are women. I don't know, Anna Biller, maybe you need new friends. Oh, man. 
it, it's disappointing to see. And it's happened to me a couple of times within my career where somebody will come up with a film that I consider really strongly feminist. And then if asked about it, they'll be like, oh, no, feminist? That's that's for like, you know, that's, that's for like burning your bras and this and this and that. And ironically, Anna Biller is calling people out for not understanding feminism for what it is, a political movement and a fight for rights without recognizing the role of media I like my films to be feminist, and feminist films, to me, the portrayal of women and an entire cast of different people as interesting, as concerned, as caring, as distinct, you know, as having personalities. And some horror achieves that, some of it doesn't. But there is a lot that does, and I think we come into it for different reasons. And mm-hmm. I I remember getting into slashers because I, I grew up with my mom, as, as I think a lot of parents do, buying your kid Disney movies and watching them and being like, yeah, these are cool child entertainment. And I just kind of remember being like, why does she always get married at the end? <sighs> why does she – and then it ends. What happens? And then I discovered slasher films, and these were real – complicated women like Mm -hmm. who had sexual desires who wanted to smoke pot or uh, survive to fight another day like there's a myriad of women like that but they weren't interested in getting married Mm -hmm. they weren't interested they were off doing their own thing and trying to survive and and it's those characters that have rung the most true for me in my life Mm -hmm. and the ones I see myself in and my friends in, even if they're not fans of slashers I think the film that I often look back on as the one that made me start not looking for feminism in films, but like recognizing feminist features in films that you wouldn't conventionally think of as feminist was Barbarella. And I have such tremendous and profound love for this film, and I never get to fucking talk about it because it's not a horror film. So goddamn, give me the space right now. I'm taking it. I don't care. Barbarella is a science fiction film with um, Jane Fonda, and she is she's at the height of her popularity. She's I think it was her husband at the time who produced this film, and I think she turned down another like really great role to take this. So everybody hates that she did this film because it's it, it's kind of it's really pulpy, and it's about this woman. This it's set in the distant future, and she is the captain of her ship, and she is given a mission to find someone, a scientist called Juran Juran, and yes. This is absolutely where the band got its name. Anyway, she accomplishes her mission by sleeping with people. And she finds someone and she wrecks her ship and she needs him to rebuild it. So she fucks him. And it's a huge sexual awakening for her because the film takes place in the future. And in the future, sex has been outlawed. Instead, they take these ecstasy pills and they press their hands together. And, like, they decided that sex was really distracting. So they don't do it the old-fashioned way anymore. So she discovers sex. She starts enjoying sex. She starts craving sex. And she fucks her way across the universe. And I loved this film. I love it because it's colorful and bombastic and there's a lot of horror elements if you haven't checked out this film and you're a horror fan it's worth seeing just for the island of dolls have you seen this no i really need to now i think you do yeah Yeah. it's 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 wonderful and i remember like being a teenager and watching it with a girlfriend and just being like holy shit first of all jane fonda like what even is my sexuality i do not know and second of all She's just this space slut who fucks her way across the universe, and yet I find her terribly empowering. And that was kind of the the rift and the schism that happened in my head where I was trying to reconcile it before I realized that it was easily reconciled with the idea that women That's are transgressive. people. transgressive. Totally. 
It's completely transgressive. It's transgressive in the way that Vivian and Peeping Tom is happy to be on camera. It's transgressive in the way that Marion goes off on her own to try to fix her man problem. These films are subversive and in being subversive in nature they subvert a patriarchal norm Mm -hmm. and that to me is what's most exciting and I think what we have in these two films is again it's the floor plans of slashers stuff that would be built up again and again and part of me as a slasher fan is I like watching them to see the the changes, mm-hmm. the turns, the things that they deviate from and how mm-hmm. that changes the narrative. Uh, it's, it's almost a bit like a mathematical equation. And I love these films because they talk about so much of the shit that so many other films will not talk about. Yeah. Um, they talk about the fetishization of the female body. They talk about women as people. They show empathetic, interesting female characters. And they show the violence that befalls them and that they are surrounded by. Mm-hmm. And... Fuck me if that's not every woman I know. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think a lot of the scholarship that I read about these two films is, you know, like, yes, it imposes the gaze into a male gaze. Yes, it puts you in the camera and it does this and this and that. But I I see myself in the victims, too. I remember that very first scene of Peeping Tom. He's walking. I've never walked a street. However, I have stood on a street at night and been completely eye-fucked head to toe by somebody walking by. I have felt that gaze on me. And I think, for me, that was the more disturbing element of being on the other side of it. I I think a lot of women have felt that gaze. And to see it portrayed in film, it's like, oh, it's real. Yeah. You guys know about it. You filmmakers fucking know about it. Yeah. We all know about it. You guys just don't want to admit to it. And now we can talk about it, whether Anna Biller likes it or not. And we are going to keep talking. And the thing we're going to keep talking about next month is Michael Haneke's Funny Games. So excited. This is one Andrea has been particularly primed for for a long time and talking about wanting to do. And I'm really excited to do it. So we will be talking about the original one. We may bring up the remake, which Haneke also did. We'll see how that goes. But if uh, you're keener and you keep up with us, definitely check out the OG funny games yes in addition we want to once again thank everybody who picked up the t-shirts everybody who is giving us ratings on itunes and on our facebook page we've just enabled ratings there we really appreciate it with every positive review our show grows a little bit more and we're super grateful for where we are we've got a lot of great stuff coming up ahead we've got salem coming up and this year we're doing a little bit more than the live podcast we did last year i mean we're doing that but we're yeah. doing more as well. So uh, Salem Horror announced its lineup for that weekend, so we can officially reveal everything to you guys. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> the exciting thing is, is the Friday night, October 12th, we are going to be doing a live show on Ty West's The House of the Devil. Yep. Oh boy, am I excited. You That's are, one right? of my favorites. One of my favorites. I am going to have to disentangle that film from the bad date that I saw it on. But I will. I've got a couple of months. So it's going to be a really exciting live show. I'm going to fangirl out. Andrea will be in some kind of therapy. You guys can watch it live. That's going to be exciting. (laughs) Yes, that's House of the Devil. If you can get to Salem, come check it out. It was so much fun. And because it was so much fun, we're each doing a bit more. Mm -hmm. So the following day, I believe the Saturday, October 13th, I'm actually going to be doing a lecture on female killers in 90s films. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be talking about a myriad of films, some horror, some kind of slightly outside the horror genre, I think, like Serial Mom and Natural Born Killers, but then some Basic Instinct and Urban Legends. 
So lots of stuff there. And I'm really excited to talk about that. And for myself, the following day, the Sunday after Alex's lecture, I'm going to be conducting a lecture on hell and cinematic depictions of hell in horrors. It's going to be a little bit of theology going on in there. It's going to be branching off of the chapter that I wrote on Hellraiser. I think I talked about it in our Hellraiser episode. I think I had just recently published that chapter. So cinematic depictions of hell and how those depictions have changed throughout the years, depending on our collective opinions of hell and what hell is and what hell means. And I'm also really looking forward to that. It's been a while since I've done a lecture. Yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. And again, SalemHorror.com, links in the show notes, check it out, get your tickets, and hopefully you can join us. So that wraps up our voyeuristic gaze back into the origins of slashers with Psycho and Peeping Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next month with a look at funny games. And until then, office hours are closed. Mm -hmm.